0: Welcome to the new episode of the Corporate Chat Podcast. Your hosts for today are Shiraz Maisels and myself, Alexis Beaulieu. We are both pursuing a Bachelor of Commerce at McGill University. Thanks to our sponsors, Deloitte, Cimentov Development Ltd. and Red Bull. The guest for today's episode is Laurent René de Cottré. He is a quantitative researcher at Ceci Volta. Soci Volta is a quantitative proprietary trading firm specialized in electricity markets. Prior to that, Laurent worked for NASA as a software architect. He received a Bachelor of Mathematics and Physics, a Master's in Physics, and earned his PhD in physics in 2021, all from McGill University. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Laurent René de Cotret. Hi Laurent, how are you today? doing well. How are you? I'm doing really good, thanks. So to begin with, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your experience, your, your background, and your past?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I was a physics and math student as an undergrad at McGill, and then I continued on to um, combine master's and PhD in physics, after which I had to decide what I wanted to do with my life, and that's really tough. Um, I looked at two different paths, one of which is um, the academic life, so that includes Usually, multiple postdocs, and then maybe get a professorship, maybe um, some random place in the world. Or I also looked for jobs, and one thing that was interesting to me is finance. And so, in the end, I applied to many jobs. Um, I got a few interviews, bombed a few of them, and then finally ended up at this tiny startup called Soci which is a tiny, um, kind of a less than, well, we're 10 people now. Um, trading shop that deals in electricity markets which I understand we'll talk about later. So I've been at that job for about two and a half years.
0: So where did your finance interest come from?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I like physics because the laws are well-defined and uh, the consequences of those laws are not well-defined. That's pretty interesting. So for example, I I studied quantum physics and we, uh, at least at the level where I operated, um, we understand the laws perfectly well but their consequences are mysterious. Um, And so in finance, it seems to be the same, where there's like um, a a structure, and operating in this structure seems like it would be simple on the surface, but then it's not, and that's where creativity comes in. There's also kind of, especially in the job that I have, there's a lot of overlap with computer science, with statistics, with math, and I really enjoy that. It's kind of a mix.
2: That's great. Okay, could you share a significant challenge you encountered in your career, and maybe describe some strategies that you employed to successfully overcome it?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, there are many challenges. The first one, I don't know if we want to address this, it would be um, getting getting a job. I found mm-hmm. that to be really tough. Um, we will, we will. Okay, sure. It. We'll do that later. So another one is, um, in, in terms of finance, it is, it is risk management. So um, the firm where I work, we have, um, the, the, the market in which we operate is very risky and we have learned along the way a lot of hard um, kind of, um, what would I say? Um, Hard lessons, and then um, we've overcome some challenges in the recent past that have made it so that we actually lost a few um, a few coworkers. Yeah, so we had to um, we had to define our own kind of risk metrics, and we've had to determine what what risk is are we willing to take, what um, what profits are kind of come from that. Sometimes it's uh, it's a lot like gambling. But we've learned how when to kind of hold back. That's kind of the the, the level of challenge that I face day to day. Some days are worse than others. Yeah.
0: And where does your um, firm get the money from? Do you have investors or? Yeah, that's a good
1: question. We don't have, we're not a fund. So we're not like a hedge fund Mm -hmm. where people pool money and we make that, we make money for those investors we have investors in the sense that we have had we have operational um needs so we need money to get started um the money that we trade is a mix of cash that we've accumulated over time and um and other financial products that we get from banks so uh, for example um one that we have is called a a letter of credit i believe where we buy the insurance from a bank that they will cover our asses if we lose, for example, a million dollars and we pay for that, that letter of credit, a uh, sum that is way less, which is effectively like a loan. So we can take that, for example, a million dollars and invest it however we want. So it's, it's kind of like a loan. Um, we only use what we invest. We, sorry, we only, yeah, we only pay for what we use. We don't, it's not like a mortgage. Um, so we basically borrow money and then we have also,
0: and then you spread the revenues between the the employees.
1: Yeah. So we have this program where we, we have our, um, like net profits at the end of the day, we separate this 90% is reinvested and 10% goes to employees. That's the kind of bonus program. Um, Of those 90% reinvestment, the idea is so that we can grow at an exponential rate. So if you reinvest every year 90% of what you make, the 90% after four or five years um, is looking a lot better. Okay, so that's really interesting.
0: That's really like a little private group that operates and you're you're paid in function of
1: how good you are basically. That's right. Yeah. So the technical term for this is uh, proprietary trading. Yeah.
2: Very interesting. We also wanted to know why you decided to pursue phys- physics all the way to the PhD level and how you believe this expertise has really benefited you in your personal and your professional career.
1: Mm-hmm. It was just because um, I love the lifestyle of doing science and there very little places can you be paid to do fun stuff. So as a as a science PhD student, you get paid enough to live. I think it's about minimum wage and, um, and uh, you get to spend that money and time however you want, which is great, so you get complete freedom. You technically have a boss, like I had a, a PhD advisor who was super chill. Um, we bounced ideas off of each other and I ended up choosing what I in, in, in the end focused on. So that's on the kind of PhD side. Why did I do it in physics? Just because that's the thing that I was good at and I enjoyed. So I did my bachelor's in math and physics and although I love math, I'm just not that good at it in, in relative terms to my peers. Um, and yeah, there's also this idea that physics is, is, is more applicable in the sense that you can branch off to do engineering stuff. I do a lot of software engineering today. You can do finance, whereas with a pure, um, I don't know, a pure math background, I don't really know what you would be able to do. Um, yeah.
2: Right. And also, where did your passion for physics kind of originate?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, I always enjoyed um, playing with Lego and, and when I was a kid, and that, that stayed with me for a long time. And in the end, I, I, I thought I wanted to be an engineer, whether it was civil engineering or electrical or whatever, they all seemed so interesting. Um, and in the end, in CEGEP, so the equivalent of the end of high school, um, there's no engineering class. There's a physics class, though, and I enjoyed that. So I thought, no, let's just keep the fun rolling.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you've talked a lot about uh, how physics can help you in the quantitative finance, but how did you supplement your physics knowledge with uh, with financial knowledge moving into the financial sector?
1: That's a that's a hot take. When I was hired, I had zero financial knowledge at all. Yeah. Okay. So there was an understanding, and in many places where I applied, it was the same. There was an understanding that I was coming in with let's say raw skills, and I was going to need I was going to need to learn on the job.
0: So. Did you learn yourself or somebody teach you or helps you on the job? So mostly on the job, yeah. Mostly on the job, That's okay. right. So what do you think about programs such as the Master of Financial Engineering?
1: I've heard of this, I am not familiar with it. Um, in not, None of my um, co-workers or even anyone I know in this field has a degree in Financial Engineering. Um, in general, I would think that any role that is well-defined, maybe at a large bank, where um, you're kind of more on rails, that makes sense. Um, then you learn exactly what you're going to do on the job. That's great. And
0: what does your typical colleague as as a background?
1: So we have uh, we have um, PhD in math, master's degree in math. We have um, we have chemists. We have uh, another PhD in physics that I recruited actually from McGill, and. Um, I think we have one philosophy major and um, one philosophy major. That's right, yeah. Okay. And um, and engineers. And what do you
0: think the different paths can bring as different opinion or views on the field? For example, the philosophy major. Yeah, that's <laughs> or, right. Or for example, math and physics do what do you think mm-hmm. are the difference that they bring in the firm?
1: Well, what what I am looking for when I'm hiring um, is for people to be to think out of the box. And that requires you to be exposed to a lot more ideas. And often what I found is that there is kind of like this exponential um, buildup of ideas when there's two people with different background that kind of combine their thoughts together. So in that vein, having, for example, some people on the team with a financial engineering background sounds good, having them all have the same background, to me that would sound like a net negative. They
0: will all think the same and like- That's what I'm thinking,
1: but I don't know.
2: Okay, so in total, like you do, do you believe that there's like one like educational path to becoming a quant researcher? Or do you think like it is advantageous to have different perspectives and different like backgrounds of people because that helps with your projects?
1: I would think that understanding of math and understanding of some level of software engineering or computer science is required. But apart from this. I don't think. So you don't it also not think
0: like one one pathway would be superior to
1: another. Superior? That's a tough question. I personally don't think so. My uh, my most uh, let's say my most competent colleague that I've met um, was a neuroscience PhD. You would think that uh, out of the box that that would make for good quantitative research, but he was creative and he was competent at math and um, in computer science. That's what was needed. So we're looking for technical skills and creativity effectively. You can find that anywhere.
0: So if someone with a PhD in neuroscience can be a good quantitative researcher, that does that that means that the math required to be a quantitative researcher is not that advanced.
1: It's interesting. I think the math required to do a PhD in neuroscience is more than you expect. Maybe okay, that's what that it is. is yeah. probably, that's probably wrong then. <laughs> but uh, yeah, here's a good point. I In my um, in my my academic career, I didn't really learn much statistics and I've been able to learn what I need on the job. So even though statistics is a major part of being a quant, you can, it's not ad- at the level where I operate anyways, it's not advanced enough that, that you can't, that you need to have a degree in it, for example. Now, I know there are firms where it is definitely required, so it depends on the, the, the asset class and the kind of market you're operating in, but and where, where I work, I do not need to have, for example, um, an advanced degree in statistics.
0: Okay, so if you, wanted to, if you knew you wanted to be a quant, which degree would you take?
1: Personally, I would take some variation of software engineering or computer science. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. With, with added statistics, um, like a minor in statistics, for example, I think so.
0: And as a quantitative researcher, could you walk us through
1: your typical day in the office? For sure. Um, when I go to the office, let's say any given day, I'll do one of those things. But in general, here's a, here are the tasks that I'll do. I will, um, one of my responsibilities is looking over the performance of our automated trading systems. So I will look at what are we, so usually we track it on the basis of the past uh, day. So in the past day, are systems behaving as we are, have systems behaved like we would have expected them to? If not, what's the problem? Often these days, uh, the problem that we have is that the the tracking methods that we use are usually um, a bit less precise than we want so it's not necessarily that the trading is not working well it's that the reporting of it is not working so well so I'll fix some issues with this then I will usually spend some time maintaining a software that is used to then either evaluate trading strategies or new trading strategies so then then the time is kind of split there
2: so would you say that your job is kind, of, kind of constantly evolving because, like day to day, you guys are looking at what you did in the past day and then trying to improve for the next day?
1: Yeah, especially for once, for one um, kind of, um, I would say, like per- precision is that um, once a trading system is automated. And works fairly well it's rather hands-off which is what what gives us the ability to keep evolving moving to new asset classes moving to new markets because if, if the system that we've put in place is working correctly we don't need to touch it that frees us that, that frees our time kind of whereas uh, as a comparison my boss used to be kind of a more manual trader and there because there's a lot more what would you call it kind of uh, operations needed from the person that would not have given us the opportunity to, for the role to evolve. You've mentioned you did
0: quantitative research during a day. Do it alone or in a group?
1: I do the thinking in group and I do the testing alone. Yeah, okay. So the, the, there's a lot of brainstorming that happens. We accept ideas from anyone, and many people have great ideas. Um, so even from my colleagues who are not quants, I will always listen to their advice and then uh, the testing because it's a lot of computation is usually done along
0: and how long does it take to develop like a complete strategy
1: yeah so let's say on a good day it could take one day it could take a few hours for it to be formulated so formulated means like i have an idea then i need to look for do i have the data that i uh, need to evaluate that idea and if i don't how hard is it to get maybe not the final data but maybe some like test set from somewhere that I can just scrape by then there is the uh, the computation well the yeah kind of the part where it's called back testing where we run the trading system in a simulation to see how it would have behaved over the past few years and if that works so that usually doesn't take that long actually if that works then we want to encode this idea into the live trading system and then observe it trade a little bit if it matches our expectations then it will be what i would call scaled up so we'll allow it to trade more and then by the end of the day it's done it's running
0: and how many different strategies does your pro firm use do you have only two really good strategies or do you have tens or even hundreds of different strategies
1: so, we, the, the way our market is kind of segmented, um, there are, um, we can create, let's say, I don't know, like 50 categories of things that we trade, and therefore we have on the order of 50 strategies. Some products, we quote unquote products, we trade them with two or three strategies, but in general, so that's the order of, of things, yeah. Do you think that maintaining a work life balance is, is
0: difficult in your field?
1: Maybe if you worked elsewhere, uh, but what I found is that no, it's very easy. Um, I, as in, very, I work 40 hours a week. I don't, it's not required of me to work more. Sometimes I want to, because it's fun, especially when, you know, when we're in that creative phase. Um, like these days, I, um, if my boss asked me to stay overnight, I, I actually would, because I'm having a lot of fun. Um, but there's no requirement, implicit or explicit, to work longer hours. I find it to be pretty chill. So you're probably on,
0: you're probably only at uh, in the office for forty hours, but you must probably be thinking about it eighty hours a week,
1: yeah, yeah. basically, yes, but this is on my own time of my own volition, yeah, which exactly, is okay That's because why. you want to so.
2: and what would you say your favorite part of your job is like on a day to day basis? I
1: think it is the moment where um you have a the moment where I can take an idea and then express it and then test it like kind of right away, that's the, those are the best days. That doesn't happen that often because once a strategy has been kind of deployed, usually they stay pretty good um, in our markets anyways.
0: And how long can you keep a strategy going on? Do you have to update it every six months or how long do you usually yeah, good idea. use it before um, it's, it becomes uh, useless?
1: We, um, this is specific to the markets we operate in. They, they, they stay alive for long, okay. uh, probably months. Okay. Sometimes, I'm, I'm sure we have some that are years old. Um, whereas in, in, in if, if we were trading equities where um, where there's more of an um, adversarial component where if everyone has the same information then everyone can trade the same, then uh, knowledge of other people's strategies may influence yours. The market we operate in is not like this. And so it's much more rooted in like the structure of the physics of the power grid. Power grid is effectively the... The network of power stations, such as such as hydro dams, nuclear power stations, and so the network of those power generation assets and their the transmission to the large consumers, which are usually not not people's homes, but rather utilities. Um, so in the U- in, in Quebec it's a bit different, but in the U.S. it would be, for example, that you have a utility that is spread over a certain area. The utility sells power to consumers, to people's homes, but the utility does not necessarily generate its own power it may buy it from other people. So the power grid is what I, what's called a wholesale, uh, wholesale power, um, which is kind of that higher level. If an edge exists, for example, because there is uh, an inefficiency in the power grid itself, that does not change quickly and therefore strategies can live for long.
2: And do you believe that there are any threats currently facing your industry?
1: Um, There are threats for people who don't move fast enough. Um, Basically, the power grid as I see it over the next, let's say, 10, 20 years is going to change a lot from the fact that we have electric cars that are going to need to be charged. A lot of people are using a lot of electricity, population is growing. And so that will require the grid to change and therefore for power traders to adapt. If you have an automated system it's very easy to adapt so I don't think that we are facing a threat in that sense Um, one thing that I I actually it's more of a question I don't know are inefficiencies going to be addressed in a way that will remove opportunities I don't know
2: and could you also elaborate a little bit about the sentence you said earlier about the opportunity and um
1: yeah for sure so i work in technically it's called power arbitrage it could be any type of arbitrage could be uh, crypto arbitrage or equities or etf arbitrage i believe is a pretty big Um, if so arbitrage the difference in price if that difference in price of power, in my case, at two different locations disappears. Doesn't matter how smart I am, if there's no way to make money, I will never make money. And so this is the opportunity I talk about. Mm -hmm. If the grid becomes suddenly, for example, superconducting, then uh, there is no need, there's no kind of transmission limitation that means that the price of the same commodity at two places is different. And so there's no strategy that can palliate for this change. Right.
0: I don't know if you can answer this question, but how do you find your information to know uh, if one place, for example, is less expensive than the other to be able to do your arbitrage?
1: Yeah, that's not covered by an NDA. Uh, so basically, the, the, um, the government, so we, um, we operate mostly in the U.S., the state and federal governments provide all of this data publicly. You can go get it. And so uh, there, there's a data feed that, that you can subscribe to. This is in contrast to private exchanges where you cannot get usually that data for yourself, but in, in our case, um, it's all available.
0: So basically you're just faster than the other to be able to do your arbitrage.
1: Right, yeah, so the idea of reacting, we do it definitely faster than, than the average trader who's doing it by, you know, by hand, um, for sure. This is, we're not talking about high frequency trading here, but, um, but the reaction time that we have is about, I wanna say 20 seconds. Whereas a person might be more like on the scale of minutes.
0: I was wondering about if what you were doing were um, uh, high frequency trading, which
1: is, can you explain it just for our for listeners? Sure. Yeah, so I, uh, there's been debated, what does high frequency mean? We are a fixed five minute frequency trading. But the what I would say when I said we uh, we operate on the 22nd range, that is the latency. So from the time we want to do something to the time that it has been kind of punched in the the trading uh, platform, um, takes about 20 seconds. So this is what I would consider medium or, um, yeah, medium frequency, because on the order of minutes, there's no constraint that much on the hardware of the computer, we can do this rather easily. Whereas for high frequency trading, there's some equities firms that are are operating in the microsecond range. Um,
0: If you could have a faster system, wouldn't you make more money on your arbitrage?
1: Yeah, so in the, in, the mark, in power markets, you would not because the way it operates is that it is a fixed time auction where uh, bids are collected and um, are cleared automatically. So it is not, I, I won't get an answer faster if I provide my bid faster. Bids all come out at the same time, or rather bids all come in at the same time and, um, and get cleared at the same time.
2: Okay, and as a physics PhD student, in terms of your like day-to-day calculations, do you have any thoughts on quantum computers and if they were to become more widespread, does that have any impact on what mm. you guys do?
1: That's one of the blind spots I have. I don't know enough about quantum computing to be able to say. Uh, my understanding is that quantum computers are really good at certain problems, mm-hmm. um, some of which I've heard, uh, the traveling salesman problem, uh, factoring large numbers. None of which really apply to us. Uh, so we, if if you were, for example, to sell me a quantum computer for a million dollars, I would not pay that much. Some people would because it would be very useful for them, not for us.
0: Okay. So if you do arbitrage, it, it means that you buy your electricity and you sell it right away at a higher price, or do you wait for it to go up in value?
1: Yeah, power is... Um, special because it is a commodity but it cannot be stored at the scale we're talking about cannot be stored Um, and so arbitrage is about finding the places where power will be priced in an advantageous way and then locking in both transactions at once so for example we often um, buy power in the New England area we often want to sell that power to um, the New York area so what we'll do is we'll put in one bid to buy and one bid to sell at the same time and because we think that the price in the future will be um, will be different and so the power grid the way it operates is you have to do this hours in advance and um, and so the arbitrage is kind of delayed in time
0: and I don't know if you can answer this one again what is your win rate percentage?
1: Yeah, it's actually pretty high. Um, I believe that we make—I oh, can't remember if it's—I uh, think it's sixty percent. Okay. I and how many trades
0: do you do per day usually?
1: Yeah, we'll do. Um, so if we have, let's say, thirty products, fifty uh, percent of the time, twenty-four hours, uh, we'll do the math like uh, nine hundred times, let's say.
2: Okay. Yeah, we'll trade. Uh, we'll trade a thousand times. Though. Yeah.
1: The thing that's interesting is that. When we are correct, so it sounds like it's close to a coin toss, but when we are correct, we're very correct. And when we're wrong, we're just a little wrong. Does that make sense? And so cool. in, in practice, the the correctness weighted um, by by profit is, uh, is pretty good.
2: And in your professional field, what are some opportunities for like, are there opportunities for advancements and progressions within the companies? Yeah.
1: Mm, um, I mean, I I guess that in large firms, it would be possible to move from quant to then managing a team of quants. I've heard of this. I think my boss, for example, did this for a while. In the firm I work in, it's too small um, to be able to do this. However, I believe it's like software engineering where in terms of progression, you have two choices. You can either start managing other software engineers, or you can start, or you can become what's called a, um, a senior independent contributor. I think it's the same for quants. If you love that job, you can keep it forever as long as you're good, of course, and you can keep progressing in the ways that the responsibilities that you have are larger. For example, I've been doing this for about two years, um, and recently I've been assigned a new market uh, or a new asset class that we're going to trade, and I, I see it kind of as a I don't want to say promotion, but as an evolution because now I get to start something from scratch. Right.
0: And if you wanted to quit, what do you think would be your exit opportunities?
1: Ooh, well, right now, markets are not looking so great. So if I wanted, for example, to do a lateral move, that would be probably pretty tough. Um, my exit opportunities, I'm not sure. So quant, the word on the CV quant is usually looked... Um, it looks tantalizing, so I believe it would op- offer me some some. It would open me some doors, but I couldn't say what they were. In terms of lateral move, I think that's kind of dead right now.
0: And uh, your firm specifically focuses on the electricity market, and we're wondering why you couldn't use your strategies in other markets. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So the thing that makes this specific commodity special is the fact that it cannot be stored, and everything de- derives from this fact. Um, for example, if, you, if we switch the power grid to be uh, now powered by coal entirely, coal can be stored and therefore conversion to, from coal to electricity can be done kind of at leisure. I mean, yeah, in some way. Um, but electricity, the balancing of the grid immediately from, you know, a thousand different generation um, or d- power plants at the same time that cannot be stored. That needs to be handled in a special way where uh, you need, for example, you need to have trades entered in advance, sometimes days in advance, sometimes it could be even longer. And therefore, um, a lot of the strategies are, are a bit longer term. So even, even what I would call our like shortest term strategies are still a, a kind of uh, trying to predict the future in a few hours. Um, there is no way to apply um, the similar techniques that you would see in equities markets um, at a shorter term. So that makes it rather special. How is your compensation
0: spirited in terms of bonuses and base salary? Yeah, so sure. I'm not asking for numbers, just percentage of how it's spirited.
1: Yeah, so my, the way that it works is that everyone at the company where I work gets um, assigned um, an equal share of the profits. There is uh, there is no so that means that in general I couldn't say what this year's bonus is going to look like compared to my income, but we do have forecasts of what that would look like. And so in percentage, it looks like my base compensation, time uh, the sorry comparing the bonus, the base compensation might go from 10% to 60%. If I want to illustrate this, that means that this year I would probably be paid between 1.1 times my base salary to 1.6 times my okay. base salary. Yeah, depending on how well we do this year, this all contingent on on on. Uh, so we just started the financial year, so it's all contingent on the next few months.
2: Okay. And do you have any overarching goals for yourself or for your career in the future years?
1: Yeah, um, I really enjoy what I'm doing right now, um, and I want to learn more about. The way that the power grid is managed, the way that it can evolve in the future. So, I can see myself in five, ten years doing something else in the similar space. Not finance, but rather power grid related or in the energy industry. I could see that happening.
2: Very interesting. And how is the person you've become today different from the person you imagined yourself to be at university?
1: Yeah, I thought I would be spending my time in a lab a lot more. Mm-hmm which you might think that what I do is different, and it is, but, um, but there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of thinking about ideas and then testing them, and in, in, we call them experiments. Uh, they're not experiments because they're on, they're on the computer, but it's a very similar kind of um, time spent, and so in a sense, I'm not doing what I expected, but in another sense, I'm doing something that's pretty close. Right. And why didn't
0: you decide to go into academia?
1: Mm, I was considering it after my PhD, and uh, there there are two problems. One of them is that you need funding, uh, and the other one is that you need to be okay with moving sometimes pretty far. So the line I drew is that if I didn't get a particular um, funding opportunity, I would just call it quits and not do it, and I didn't get it. If I had gotten it, I might be uh, in the United States right now, for example. Yeah.
2: And would you say that your job right now is more interpersonal or individual, or is it just like a mix of both?
1: It's definitely a mix. It's definitely a mix. Given that, um, given that trading is automated, I could spend all almost, let's say, three quarters of my day talking to people, thinking about ideas, and then twenty-five percent acting on them. Ends up not being quite true right now, but. Um, Let's say, for the sake of discussion, that it's perfectly balanced. So 50-50 acting alone and collaboration. The thing that's cool about this job is that you can kind of make it your own. So I know, for example, there's another quant at our our firm where um, he acts more alone. He gets uh, feedback maybe, I don't know, once a week or something, maybe twice a week. And then he just likes going to town, trying stuff on his own. And so he made that his own. How would
0: you describe the personalities of your typical colleague
1: yeah my colleagues are um, so this is a very small firm so we chose people to who 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 are kind of like us irreverent who uh, like fun uh, people who are a bit who are risk takers we're also looking and and the people that we have um, are very pragmatic so often we will um, we will err on the side of we'll just fix it later and that has proven to be a great choice most of the time.
0: We've seen that you've worked at NASA. How is it working for NASA, which is such a high reputed? Uh, well, it's not a company, but part of the or organization. exactly.
1: Yeah, it was pretty fun. Um, to be clear, I didn't. I never set foot there, so it was a remote job. In that sense, it was a, it was less fun. Um, and uh, this job was definitely one hundred percent alone. So the thing that's then then is sometimes. Um, I wanna say sad, is that you're operating on requirements which are not clear. In the case of that job, the requirements were so clear that I, need, I didn't need any input from anyone else. Okay. And so uh, the thing that was fun was the work itself. So of course, uh, these things are usually interesting. So this particular research project had to do with finding alien life, which is usually you know, it's pretty interesting. Um, but in terms of like the day-to-day job, it's, um, it was okay.
0: And how did you get recruited by
1: NASA? It's, um, it's always a mix of um, luck, skill, and uh, networking. So it ended up being networking in this case. Um, I, um, I attended a lecture at McGill on astrobiology, the study of what biology would be for aliens, and the speaker didn't have her laptop that day, so I was like, just use my laptop, whatever, and then we kept in touch, and at some point she was looking for a software uh, developer and she just contacted me.
0: And where did you learn the skills to be a
1: software developer, did you learn it on your own? I kind of learned it, it started, so in the physics department, there are classes where you have to do, uh, you have to basically do, what's called experimental methods, so you have to do experiments and then analyze the results. That's where you learn a little bit of statistics, you learn a little bit of coding, and then I expanded from that. So I didn't start on my own, but then I, I learned on my own, mostly because I was interested.
0: Do you have anything you wanted to say or to add that could help students who has to work in finance uh, that we may not have talked about?
1: Yeah, I do have a, have a hot take with which people should, um, especially students, should, should learn kind of pretty useful. Um, a lot of people seem to think that quant research is a lot of machine learning and AI. That may look like it's a huge barrier. And I just wanna tell people that um, although it is used and it is a useful skill to have, it is not a requirement. So if you are thinking it's really hot right now to do a, a, a master's in, in data science and machine learning, and although these things are super interesting, you don't need it. So one interesting thing is that at our firm, we have actually scaled back the amount of AI and machine learning that we use because we were able to outsmart it using just domain knowledge. Um, So
0: why then did you recommend computer science as a major in undergrad? Yeah, it's interesting.
1: So for me, the computer science is the ability to express yourself using the computer. It's not the, the, the derivative kind of product of machine learning. So there's a lot of computer scientists that work in machine learning and AI, but that's not what I referred to when I meant computer science. It's really the understanding the foundations of computing in such a way that you can use the computer effectively.
0: Do you think that that in bigger firms, the roles are more separated between the developers and the researchers?
1: That's a good question. It's probably separate. Yeah, so I'm biased towards, uh, it's a small firm, so I do more uh, work on my own. So because my uh, role is kind of more spread out, then I do need to be more of a developer sometimes. Um, That's a good point. Yes, in larger firms, it might be segregated, that's true.
0: Okay, so we will go on to the rapid fire questions. So these are easier questions, more simple that you can answer in a shorter shorter way. So in one sentence, how would you define
1: success? Hmm, I think it's the um, I think it's the, the the journey through challenge to reach a goal. And I would say that it is not success if it was not challenging. I would say that.
0: And what is the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given you?
1: Yeah, I don't remember who told me, but um, the person told me, if you encounter consensus, it is your moral duty to consider it to be wrong. And in trying to understand for yourself what should be, then um, you will either learn that the consensus was right, in which case the consensus is now stronger, or you'll, made a brill- you'll make a brilliant discovery. And That actually has been really useful.
2: Um, if you were not working in the finance industry, what would you see yourself doing?
1: Mm, I would... Probably be working in a lab. So, for example, when I applied for jobs, I applied for um, a physicist job at uh, Corning Glass, the, the company that used to make an iPhone kind of glass. Uh, there are also, I, I know that they employ um, physicists at firms where they deal with um, self driving technology, usually sensors. I'll probably do that.
2: And what is one book you would recommend to our listeners?
1: Yeah, I read recently the book, I believe the name is The Beginning of the End of the World. No, that's not true. The End of the World is Just at the Beginning. And that book dis, uh, discusses the consequences of changing demographics across the world. That's really useful, right. I, I think, to think about.
0: What would be the top five skills in order of importance to do your job? Mm.
1: I would say critical thinking, Um, mathematical skill, by that I mean, for example, um, the ability to do general stats, computer science and or software engineering, interpersonal skills, it's always good to manage in the workplace, and finally, is that a... I don't know if it's a, a skill but um a lack of um the ability to take risks. I don't know. The um how would you say that? Being bold. Yes, oh great. Boldness, yes, so um, yes, boldness.
2: Okay, well, that wraps up our question and answer portion of the interview. Thank you so much for joining us today and giving us more insight about your personal and professional career. We really, really value your time and expertise, and we know that our listeners will learn a lot from our discussion today.
0: Thank you. Thanks a lot.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you like our episode, feel free to drop a comment or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or our social media. Have a good one and see you next time.
3: The sole purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform our listeners. It is by no means a substitute for professional guidance by qualified experts. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute financial or other professional advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss your career options, as well as financial undertakings with other professionals who specialize in wealth, securities and asset management or any other field in financial services. The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at a personal and individual risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. The views expressed on this platform are personal opinions and only and should not be construed as financial advice for a given situation or from a given institution. While all the attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for specific circumstances, and information may become outdated over time. No firm, nor any company providing financial support endorses or opposes any particular view or tools discussed in this podcast. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted towards, the content of this podcast is forbidden. This podcast may not be edited, modified, or redistributed. The Corporate Chat Podcast is no liability for any personal activities in connection with this podcast or for personal use of this podcast in connection with personal websites, computers, or playing devices. Moreover, the Corporate Chat Podcast makes no warranty that this podcast, or the server that makes it available, is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. McGill University and our sponsors expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct indirect incidental special consequential or other damages arising out of any individual's use of reference to reliance on or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast